Carnivorous couch, shit happens once a week. It swallows us for two hours when we try to sleep. It forces us to watch a film about which we then speak. Carnivorous couch with Brady and Rob. Hi everybody, hi everybody, and welcome to another episode of Carnivorous Couch, the spoiler-full podcast where we do a film a week from two film geeks. I'm here, Rob, and also we have... Brady Larson, hello. And this week we did Spring Breakers, which was awesome. Yeah, yeah. Gangsta. However, on, on the uh, on the pretty podcast skim through, uh, I think it lost some of its... Uh, some of its amazingness when you know what's going to happen. Uh, I don't know. I because you've seen it like four times. Yeah, I've seen it four times. The thing about skim throughs is you can never exactly get a movie spell unless you really watch it first frame to last. Yeah, that's true. I find uh, it still holds me in its spell every time, and even though certain viewing experiences have been different, I'd say anyway. Uh, that's meat for uh, how did you like it? Yeah, how it's, did you like our viewing experience though? How did how did I like our viewing experience? What on the projector with headphones? Oh, it, that was awesome! Especially since we both had headphones. This is, you know, the, this year's the had some good headphone movies. I'm saying it. Yeah, yeah. Even the plottier stuff like her, I bet would sound sweet with just surround sound. Yeah, well, at this point, I think you said plot, so it's time to go do it. Yeah. Okay, so the plot of Spring Breakers, or. Actually, before I get into the plot, as in the actual linear story, I should say what the movie opens with, which is this kind of surreal, dreamy music video of just people losing their shit, going completely uninhibited uh, to this Skrillex track that's playing in the background. And it's kind of grotesque and beautiful at the same time. The girls are filleting USA colored lollipops, and you know what I think of of Skrillex, right? I no, I have no idea. <laughs> you know, I've never heard any Skrillex, but I kind of like that track. It, it gets in my head a lot. Yeah, uh, yeah. I just don't like the the dub that much. No, no, that's fair. Uh, so anyway, we get this opening kind of coda of Spring Break itself. This very dreamy prototypical idea of what a Florida spring break would look like. And then we cut to a small suburban college town where our four protagonists are all attending school. Our protagonists are four girls. Uh, And one of them is a Christian who leads a very sheltered life. Uh, And the other three are varying degrees of, uh, you know, less innocent than her. And two of them, two of them are outright maniacs we come to find as when they realize they don't have enough money to go on spring break, which is coming up that week, two of the girls, using the help of the third one, go and knock over a chicken shack using squirt guns. And so, (laughs) by the way, as I'm describing this, what's not being conveyed is there's a very dreamy, kind of gauzy feel to all of this. It's very colorful. Yeah, and a a lot of voiceover in a kind of almost Terrence Malicky way. Just with imagery. It's a lot of voiceover on imagery. Yeah. Uh, but it's painting this picture of, even though we maybe see Spring Break as this grotesque, gaudy thing, maybe we do in some ways, 
to these girls, it's a shimmering holy grail. And and they also do a lot of depictions of college in that first little bit after the spring break thing. Have, yeah, have you gotten they, to that point yet? We have the and yeah, and we have the Christian girl saying that you know we're not going to be stuck here. We're not going to resign ourselves to miserable lives. And so they go off pursuing this dream, which they're now able to go on because they have money from this robbery. Right, but before that, they do have like a scene of the college party, right? Oh yeah, there's a. I mean, I definitely wanted you to mention that there's a party at the college bef- before moving on because I'm going to talk about how much that was just like college. Oh yeah, there <laughs> we see a scene of them, you know, before they have to commit this robbery to go on spring break at a college party, uh, which presumably is taking place, you know, the very last day before most students go away on on their holiday. Right. Okay, so and then they rob the joint. Yeah, they, they rob the joint and. Pretty much the Christian girl is kind of a little willfully ignorant about it. I mean, she knows they stole the money, but she doesn't have a lot of information on the details of it. So they go away on spring break, and we have lots of scenes of them having a very good time. And the Christian girl is leaving a message to her grandmother, and we're getting this kind of contrasting imagery of her speaking in almost hushed, reverent tones about what the spring break experience is like to her. We met so many nice people here. Yeah, nice people, new experiences. It's so such a beautiful place. Meanwhile, they're peeing through their bathing suits. Yeah, they're peeing on roadsides, and most of the nice friends they have are basically screaming most of the time most of the communication or, taking you place know or just pouring beer into their face or yeah yeah stuff and, like that and this is kind of indicative of the movie's tone because at the same time it's inviting us to judge knowing that maybe we'll judge but at the same time i think it's also saying like hey maybe they're right like to them maybe this is a nice time because they're in pursuit of something uh that's not what we as well certainly rob and i as verging on middle-aged white dudes want it's what young these young college girls really really want for themselves and so eventually that's problematic but anyway go on well i mean but this is i think what where the movie is kind of this tightrope it's walking uh, between judgment and not <laughs> so uh, spring break is kind of portrayed as this edenic thing through their eyes until eventually something goes wrong they are at a party where there is a lot of cocaine being used and they're arrested, and since we already know that they had to steal money just to be able to afford to come on the trip, it means that they're going to have to spend you know, three days in jail because they can't afford to pay the fines. Uh, except they are bailed out by this very, uh, kind of at first reminds you of the fox and Pinocchio, kind of this shady, oozing, but charming character. <laughs> uh, this A rapper, a southern rapper, white rapper, Named Alien, played by James Franco in one of the year's very best supporting turns, in my opinion. And he looks a lot like Gary Oldman in uh, True Romance. Yeah, it looks a lot like Drexel Spivey with the white guy with the corn rolls and the corn rolls. Corn rolls. Mmm. Mmm. I got honey and butter. Are those corn rolls? You actually have corn rolls? <laughs> nope. <laughs> hey, oh. get yourself a neg roll, man. Sit down. Chow down. <laughs> so anyway, he's. He's this uh, self-anointed hustler. He's a rapper. Yeah, he must have thought it was White Boy Day. Yeah, he, he's a drug dealer, and he we find out he's this guy who was white but grew up kind of surrounded by what we think of as the trappings of flashy gangster culture. And so the film is also very much about kind of contrasting this very safe white 
uh, party culture with this other culture that we revere and at the same time uh, white culture also tends to be afraid of while revering it which is the gangster culture the culture that comes out of a lot of gangster rap uh, and so it, the film kind of plays around with that imagery as well it's a very imagistic film and so when this happens our christian girl you know she says all of a sudden even though she's been partying with some pretty shady dudes like the, the dudes seem testosterone-bound and shady the entire time, but all of a sudden, because she's surrounded by people of color, she's saying, well, this is not what we came to do. And so she ends well, up... Well, I don't think it was necessarily that, but they're the only girls in the bar, and it's just like everybody's just kind of staring at them and brushing up against them and like leering at them and stuff, and she's not down with that. Like, not from, not from like gangsters. You know, from boys her own age who are just frat boys, okay. But I think a lot of those boys are her own age still. They're just black. N no, there's definitely some older dudes there, and it's very... I mean, but what, what becomes clear is there's this thin line between what kind of aggressive partying is okay with this girl and what kind is not. Right, I mean, and like she, she's like, oh, I didn't smoke pot, oh, I didn't drink. Like, I don't think she even. But she does smoke pot and drink. Okay. She's totally lying to her grandmother. Okay. She's doing that stuff. But I mean, like, uh, when they, when he's asking her, like, did you smoke pot? Did you drink? Blah blah blah. She's being withholding. And but was she doing the coke? Given, yeah, they all. She wouldn't have gone to jail if she hadn't been doing the coke. Well, I mean, I don't think they actually got them for possession. They just got them in a room with coke and charged them, right? I got the feeling that what they said was we didn't have you under possession, but we you tested positive for coke that you were doing these drugs. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I I don't think they'd get arrested just for necessarily being in the same room if they didn't own anything. Uh, at least not for days. I, I don't know what the law is in Florida. <laughs> yeah, me neither. Uh, and so at this point, that girl goes home on the bus, and it's. The way the movie portrays it is sort of like this bucking bronco spring break is. And the Franco character is telling her before she does it, like, okay, but like, remember, when you do this, this is the thing that you were seeking. And when you get home, you're going to just be home. Yeah. And do note that when he's telling her that, he's like caressing her face and being really creepy. And yeah. Like, he's yeah. caressing her face. It's It's got very sinister undertones. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to hurt you. <laughs> But, okay, the funny thing is, plot-wise from there, the Franco character takes a very interesting shape because as much as he's full of this gangster pomp, he, we kind of see a, a sad, flawed, but kind of good-hearted, I thought, individual underneath. I mean, he's, he's an interesting character. He's, and this is you know a big thing I like about the movie is... What are you talking about? He doesn't give a fuck. All he cares about is money. Stack and change. Yeah, that's... Look at my shit. That's what Look at my shit. And, and which is what these girls care about as well. What they're all after is the American dream. He even says it. This is the dream, y'all. It's the American dream. It's my dream. Shorts in every fucking color. And isn't that what we all want, nay, deserve? Anyway, <laughs> uh, at this point... There's shots in every color, Brady. <laughs> yeah, at our Oscar party... We're going to have shots in every color. Uh, it's an honor to Spring Breakers because normally I, we only make food for Best Picture nominees. So, first yeah. time. Anyway, at this point, we find out that there's... Oh, well, I should say, no, okay, the bed scene. Uh, so, 
we've got this image, or I think Harmony Korine, the director, kind of allows this sense to play of, well, okay, is this guy really like a skeezy guy, a guy that they shouldn't be trusting? And all of a sudden, the film flips it on its head because the girls suddenly take Franco's guns and are holding him up. And they stick the gun in his mouth and, you know, they kind of play with uh, misogynist language, pretending that they're, you know, having him fillet them. Yes. And what ends up happening is Franco completely seizes onto it and he shows that, you know, he doesn't care about these uh, gender dichotomies and that he's comfortable uh, <laughs> filleting their guns. It sounds ridiculous, uh, but it kind of works. I thought it was kind of like the the flirting with death aspect. Yeah, it's, and what it does is it, it bonds these characters that we see that these three are are different from the others. Yeah, and it shows like that the females have power. Because this is, you remember like, uh, well, it's funny, he even has his own song that kind of sounds like this. But, you know, the story of the monkeys jumping on the bed, and it's a succession of one-by-one monkeys getting knocked off. This Mm -hmm. film is structured in this way that characters lose track, lose their hold on Spring Break, and are forced to retreat as it gets more and more intense. So what it is kind of is a study of, you know, who's, who's intense enough to really hang on to the American dream, the psychotic... Instant gratification, youth or, culture or dream. Or Brady, maybe it's uh, you know, it's kind of like when you party, when you poop out halfway through. I do not. Maybe it's like that. Halfway through. <laughs> anyway, at this point, we're introduced to another a new character. James Franco had uh, a friendship growing up with this uh, black gangster named uh, I forget his name, but. <laughs> well, it's just because he has dark skin. Yeah, well, yeah, it's his, and it's his best friend from childhood who he taught to swim, the film points out. And they've had a falling out because as they've both grown up, his friend has become the big man holding on to a lot of territory in the area where Franco lives. And Franco's trying to expand himself, and the guy's saying, No, I've established myself as the superior, as the boss in this neighborhood, so you need to back off and disappear. And so. Then what we see is this really trippy extended sequence set to a Britney Spears song, uh, a ballad called Every Time, mm-hmm. where we see the Franco characters and the girls dressed in these very creepy, almost alien pink, uh, what do you call it, balaclava, where you have the uh, stocking cap you pull over your face with the eye holes. Uh, yeah, pink balaclavas. Yeah, I guess. I, I just thought they were like ski masks, but Yeah, pink. ski masks. <laughs> I, I, I have to go for the weirdest word. And so two, they have a montage to this Britney Spears song where they commit robberies, basically showing that the Franco character with his new soulmates, these two girls, uh, and the other one's still there as well, are building their empire. And the result of this is one day one of the girls gets shot in the arm by the friend. And then at this point, she has to retreat. She says, okay, enough is enough. You know, people are going home. They're going to school. Like, spring break has to end sometimes, right? Uh, And the other three are like, no, uh, not yet. Uh, But you got shot in the arm, so you go. You go ahead and go home. That's fine. You're just apparently not as hardcore as we are. I think they shot all those getting on the bus scenes on the same day. Yeah, probably. (laughs) (laughs) 
so at this point, the film climaxes and basically ends with the Franco character and the two remaining girls, the one who he professes to like the best, going off to get revenge on the friend and to uh, you know put him out of commission so that Franco can take over. But what happens is as soon as they pull up their boat to his dock, Franco's instantly shot in the head. The two girls, on the other hand, run into the mansion. They kill all of the gangsters. They kill the head guy. Notably, they don't kill the two, uh, you know, hookers, I presume. Yeah, yeah. They the don't guy kill women and children. With. Yeah, they don't kill the women. They just kill these men, these violent men. And at that point, they take Franco's car, and eventually they go home. And that's how it ends. Uh, and the Well, they go somewhere. We don't know whether or not they're going. I mean, home. I guess also uh, they're in Franco's oh, yeah, car. They're you know driving. Good point, Rob. I, we don't really know where they're going. Yeah, spring break might live forever for them. Yeah, I don't know. If, I don't know if they can go home. But there in might a, be some people looking car, for them. Yeah, in a dead gangster's car. <laughs> so yeah, you know what? Maybe yeah. I, I, I mean, I they like also torched the fucking uh, professor's car that they pulled off the first robbery with in the first place, right? Yeah, but I don't think anyone knows that because they have uh, they had the masks and were hidden. Yeah. Yeah. They should probably do the same thing with the gangster's that one, car, yeah. even though it's really nice. Yeah, it's a nice Ferrari, man. And then I guess since it's a spoiler-full podcast, I'll just end by saying the last image of the film is one of my favorite single images in uh, cinema this year. Uh, what's the last image of the film? Uh, we return to the Franco character. I think it's supposed to be after the girls have completed their robbery, and they're you know probably running back to the boat, and they bend down to kiss him as a sign of respect and as a goodbye. And I think with his dying breath, we're probably seeing through Franco's eyes the girls running away, but they're upside down, and we just see them in these kind of, you know, these eerie uh, neon bathing suits just kind of drifting away upside down, and it ends with that. And I thought it was a, a really nice, succinct kind of encapsulation of just this idea of the American dream. We hang onto it for as long as we can, but it, it slips out of our grasp. Indeed. And then also it ends with, ooh, do it again. Which I might have to keep using <laughs> in future episodes. Ooh, that's the oh, spot. What, Brady, uh, we're already on like a 19-minute plot summary, but go ahead and explain why I keep using that sound. Oh, the, the film uh, scenes are edited in such a way that every now and then when we're cutting to a, a new sequence of events, it will make the sound of, uh, what is that, a gun clicking, the safety clicking? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that is the sound that ends the film as we. It's not the, the black. safety; it's when you cock it. Yeah, the cocking. Well, I mean, if you go like, it's in the new nine millimeter guns. I think if you pull it back, it'll pop whatever shell is in the hole. Like that's how it unlocks. So it shoots, bullet comes out, and the action kicks the thing back, and then the shell casing flies out. So that's how you okay deload. But if there's no bullet in there, and you want to load the fir- first bullet in the thing, you can just pull it back and. Interesting. It operates the action such that the bullet comes out of the clip and goes into the chamber. Well, looky here. It's the second half of the operation of firing of the gun. Nice, Rob. You have much to teach. Guns are really interesting things. They're a very interesting machine. Anyway, uh, with that, we'll go on to our... um, Hey, 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 how do we like it? So, Brady, how did you like this movie? You know, I mean, I guess the fact that it was my fourth time watching it shows that I don't hate it. Uh, but no, I, I really like this movie a lot, actually. Uh, and it's it's probably my biggest surprise of the year. Because I was looking forward to something that kind of, 
you know, I was ready for a fun kind of bratty, subversive thing from the guy who wrote Kids. And I, I was sure that there would be a lot of interesting things to delve into and that it would be controversial. But I wasn't expecting something made with this much artistry and, and this much care for performance. I mean, let's let's say this. I think the four girls who act in it, I don't think any of them are particularly talented actresses. But the director knows how to cut around them and to just use, have the words, you know, uh, resonate and be meaningful so that acting isn't entirely the focus until we get to James Franco, who really can act and really does give, I think, the best performance of his career in this. And then the director can rely a little bit more on character. So, you know, I was just really impressed by by kind of the discipline it took to make something this artful out of what could have essentially just been a, an MTV goes to Cancun style film. And, you know, I think the film was marketed to some youth audiences in that way. And I can't imagine what they thought when they walked out of this, you know, uh, gauzy head trip of a film. But, yeah, no, I, I love it. I, I give it a, I have it at an A minus right now. It's A minus for me. Yeah, it's it's weird watching this because I keep going like, wow, like it's a uh, it's it's really interesting. Like when I finished it, I was like, what? <laughs> What did I just watch? That was crazy. Um, and then, then you know, now that I think of it and I think about it, uh, it's really cool. But but the thing that's most interesting to me about it is like what the mode of production must have been. I was just looking up details while Brady was talking. Uh, I think I looked at um, the budget was five million. Okay, so that makes that that's, that makes sense, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. Because oh, well, like the the film starts off in this way that it it's um first off, this is the example of the the right way to do a digital film, right? So you can shoot a lot of footage. You don't have to worry about every fucking piece of whatever going through the gate because it's all digital. And um then when you're done with it, if you shot the uh, meaningful scenes correctly, like you can really take a lot of footage and take it and put it all together and and splice it in a way that makes it more than just you know the story with James Franco and blah 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 blah. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And and that's what they did with this. And they did something really dangerous. They took a very short plot line that probably could have been done cohesively in about twenty two minutes, and really stretched this movie into what like an hour and a half. Uh yeah. And you know, filled every second of it with like uh, times of silent reflection, the soundtrack, the overlapping, like the w- the way the whole thing is put together is obviously a process on its own. I can't, you know, it's when you watch it, it's not the kind of uh, symphony that's been planned out every note in a way. It's more like a rhapsody where it's just spliced in, cut, cut and put together and just mm-hmm. all crazy like that. And I mean, I, I, I loved it. This is um, this is a B plus movie for me. I think and nice. that means a lot. Yeah, no, it's 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 a really phenomenal film. It's gonna have to age in my brain. Um, also, like you know, we're we're trying to keep it up with the party spirit. So, I I didn't think I. It's weird when you watch a movie and you go like, I think I lost some of it, you know, just because we were on the couch with our headphones in and blah blah blah. Oh right. And just like I was just zoned out, and but then I watched little clips of it. And I'm like, nope, I remember all of this. Just, it's really hard to digest. I think it's, uh, I think it's phenomenally well made, um, and yeah, I just like the mode of production that they obviously did this on the cheap, 
and saved all the money for those final scenes. Because that was something mm-hmm. else I was saying uh, to you earlier, I think, was that uh, there's this thing about indie movies. If you start off looking indie, all oh, right, we're splicing like just stock footage together and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you can make the digital footage of that kind look great a number of ways just in editing and in post. And then so you go like, all right, so this is a, a cheap budget movie. They're robbing with squirt guns and blah, blah, blah. Like, I could afford that. Like, that's a budget that's slim. But then by the end of it, you see all the big budgetness that is put into it, and it's all tail end loaded. So it just kind of keeps pushing the envelope because I, I'm keenly aware of these things when I'm watching films. I'm like, well, the budget must have been like obviously the budget for this was less than uh, was more than Iceman, right? <laughs> uh, I have, I have no idea actually. <laughs> yeah, I don't either. But I mean, I would guess I would guess it had to be right. I don't know. Iceman used a lot of fancy, well-lit restaurants. We'll get Steve to look it up for us if you just keep talking for a second. I mean, what's the what's the biggest expense on this film? You think having to use that uh, mansion at the end with the final showdown? Yeah, yeah. Well, the mansion, the sh- like all the shooting, all the props, all the guns, all the the Ferrari. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, yeah. All those kind of things really. Um, Really, uh, take a toll on it. I don't know what the budget on Iceman was. I couldn't find it. Anyway, uh, should we go do What's It All About? Uh, yeah, let's do it. What's it all about? Rip Burger? What is it about? I don't know. I don't know. You, you go for it, Brady. Oh, no. You're going to talk about the American dream, so do it. It's um you know I I think this film is a great companion piece to you know, everyone's comparing uh, Wolf of Wall Street to American Hustle when they should be comparing it to Spring Fucking Breakers guys because this is another kind of subversive look at how maybe the American dream might be a bit hollow but also kind of luxuriating in the joyful tackiness of it but whereas I think you know the our heroes in heroes per se and wolf of wall street are absolutely villains i don't think of anyone in this movie as a villain i just think they're the craziest dreamers we've ever seen right but they're like crazy sociopathic willing to just kill hundreds or tens of people oh yeah i guess what i'm saying we have tens of listeners brady they they could have killed our entire listenership even if we have tens of maybe we have three listeners they killed more than three people they killed you, the audience. Are you kidding me? They're fucking psychopaths. No, I know. That's that's what's so interesting and subversive. But still, at the end of the day, Rob, if Jordan Belfort and these those two girls and Alien were standing in front of me, I'd buy the girls and Alien some drinks and I'd punch Belfort in his face. And I find that funny. Um, You know, if... Uh, but it's also, they don't really exist. Drexel wasn't around... Maybe, because I mean the girls were hot. No, no, not not out of not out of hitting on them. I don't think they're my type, and Tess wouldn't appreciate it. But out of out of respect, I came to respect the unbelievably gaudy, violent, sick, uh, sexually debauched quality of it all. Because that's the challenge I think the director is putting forward to us is, okay, this stuff, probably a lot of this stuff repulses you. This is the kind of hollow, empty thing that we've seen on MTV for years. And yet, in this movie, it's shot through 
in such a way that we come to kind of we come to really empathize with what they're going for here, which is to just have pure liberty. I mean, we've talked. So in it's other about em- empathy. This film's about empathy. Is that what you're saying? Well, I think it's about. No, no, I don't think it's about empathy, but empathy is being brought to something that we'd ordinarily just criticize wholesale. And I think it's a film about the American dream and also just about the uh, the desire, especially the kind of desire one feels when they're very young, to just have total liberty. And I know we've had characters like Cool Hand Luke and the Easy Rider guys on the show who are trying to seek out that dream. Just Oh, yeah, that something. episode when we had them on and they sat down with us and talked about the movie, that was great. Yeah, those are good episodes. I'll release that someday. Yeah, the basement tapes. Exactly. But yeah, I think it's it's also partly about seeing what a crazy thing the American dream is and watching these girls ride it out as far as it can take them. Well, I mean, I also... But it's also how a lot of what underlies that is rotten at its core. Well, so. what I really want to do is I really want to read this film like, like as a post-feminist sort of film yeah but i haven't had enough time for that to kind of percolate and be a thing in my brain which is unfortunate because that's i would like to talk about that but i'll probably just end up saying something stupid so uh, i'm not going to talk about that i'm going to talk about something else you, you say it's the american dream Mm-hmm. how do we know it's not the american disillusionment Oh, well, I think they're wholeheartedly disillusioned with their thing. And also there's this reiterating there's a there's a thing that's understated. And it was really nice that this was understated when they use so much repeat dialogue kind of as uh, the refrain in this tome poem. Um, What they actually don't do is repeat the thing where she goes like, pretend it's a video game. Pretend it's not real. Just get through it that way. You know, that sort of thing, which is almost exactly what they're doing with the entire trip. And it does repeat that once, but not near as much as the other kind of themes. So I'm wondering if it's the dream or if it's the... What? Like, is it the American dream, really? Because they're pretending it's not real in order to accomplish it. It's the dream and the awful lies and misogyny under that dream. But it's it's also... But in the end, it's coming down and saying that at least these characters are dreaming. And there's there's something... To be kind of, <laughs> there's something horribly respectable and understandable about what these girls want because what else is there? Other than that, it's just dead eyed suburban towns. We've, I can understand them when they say that, that what else waits for them other than normal life? But we remember what the world remembers it having been said about the American dream. What did it say? George Carlin said, you have to be asleep to believe it. No, I I agree. I mean, that's why I think this is a good companion piece to Wolf, is I think both are saying that the entire American dream is built on something of a fraud. And I think this one is more about kind of this perverse idea of still tipping your cap to anyone who would be crazy enough to pursue it balls out. Fuck me, swinging balls out. Like, like. Uh, oh, I swinging balls out, man. No, but remember, uh, it's just balls out. Fuck me, swinging. No, I I can't remember. It was from one of our understudies that we did a four-person one. Sean Connery. 
Oh yeah, I forget what that was. Mm. Mm, not really sure. Uh, are you gonna keep talking? Cause I got I got stuff to say, but it's oh not, yeah, no, I'm, it's not I'm there done. in my brain yet. Oh, I guess we're done with what's it all about then. Did you is, have you felt that you've expressed what it's all about? No, but I don't have anything to say. Okay. I mean, I have things to say, but I can't express them yet. Anything I said that uh, you would object heavily to? Uh, I mean, I tried. <laughs> you did try. Wait, which part? I said American Dream or what? And then I came up with some weird thing that was just weird and not oh, actually Oh, well, disillusionment. And, and then I, let the record state, I amended what I said to include also what you said, because I think that's also part of it. It's the I want to say things. I just want you to say more things so that I have something to say. Yeah, no, no. I I agree with what Rob said. It's about how hollow the dream is, and yet what a beautiful, hollow, neon object that can be. Why is neon hollow? Well, no, it's, it's neon and hollow. It's flashy and completely morally bankrupt, and yet just dazzling at the same time. Well, let's talk about a specific scene or something. It's like my new favorite techno song in this movie. Let's talk about a specific scene or something. All right. You got one in mind? No. Go. <laughs> well, okay. How about... Ooh, let's see. Well, how about that Franco scene? I mean, that's that's a big centerpiece, and the movie's, I think, already become kind of famous for it. James Franco in his room saying, Look at my shit. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great scene. <laughs> See, that's what happens when we watch good movies. We just agree with it too much to actually like have anything. To actually, this is what happens if it's the day after I've seen a good movie. Because like, I'm not... I, I just, I'm not... I have a lot to say an hour after. Not much to say for the next week. And a lot to say after that. <laughs> I know it's it's too bad, really. Yeah. But, okay. What about understudy? Okay. Let's yeah. Let's go to understudy, and then we'll come back. Okay. We're so sorry we couldn't get the actors to do the scene from this screenplay, but we've got two understudies, and to be honest, they're probably more famous anyway. So try to guess the actors, try to guess the movies. Tweet us at C A R N Y Couch. This game called Understudy is happening, happening, happening right now. Seriously, old doesn't exist anymore. Student yesterday called me a senior citizen. I wouldn't mind if old didn't exist, but I'm not sure senior is what I'm shooting for either. It's all becoming so bland. It's not why I came to America. It's like a complete breakdown of cultures and manners. Well, the young ones have no manners. The other day at the car wash, I had a young man look me up and down and actually ask me if I was a natural blonde. No. Um, what did you say? I looked him straight in the eye and said, Well, let's just say that if I stood on my head, I would be a natural brunette with lovely breath. <laughs> mm, that's interesting, but you did not. I did, and the amusing thing was that it went right over his head. Well, you've had a mouth on you ever since back in London. You remember that old lesbian who 
threw her drink at you because you asked her if she was hung like a donut? <laughs> you know you miss it. Well, that's just the way of things. Sometimes I miss it. Maybe if Jim had lived, he loved England. He would. He really wanted us to stay the last time we were there. Do you really think you would have moved? I don't know. It's, it's silly even to talk about it. It was just a fantasy. Uh, what, what's this? My mother's wedding ring. I had her found when I was cleaning out a drawer. Charlotte, dear, we... I do say we both are in need of another drink. This is so nice lying here with you. Don't, don't you ever miss this. What we could have been to each other. Having a real relationship and kids. Well, I... I did have Jim. I know, but I mean a real relationship, Gio. Let's be honest. What you and Jim had was great, but wasn't it really just a substitute for something else? Is that really what you think after all these years? That Jim was just a substitute for something else? I wasn't substituting for anything. And there is no substitute for Jim anywhere. And by the way, what was so real about your relationship with Richard? He left you after nine years. Nine long years. Mm, 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 mm. Jim and I were together for 16 years, and if he hadn't died, we'd still be together. What the hell is not so real about that? I, I didn't mean it the way it sounded, darling. I know how much the two of you loved each other. I just suppose that I was always a bit jealous that you and I never had that kind of love. Actually, I've never had that kind of love with anyone. I don't think Richard ever loved me except for the way I looked. And Clay, I, I don't know. You raise a child and love it, and then when they get old enough, they just leave. Charlotte, there's nothing wrong with you in your life. You feel sorry for yourself. It's one of your greatest pleasures. And it's not one of yours? You're as pathetic as I am. Feeling sorry for myself is... Definitely not one of my greatest pleasures. Well, it's not one of mine either. I don't like feeling sorry for myself one bit. That was undecided. Tweet us your answer at C-A-R-N-Y Couch. Hey, everybody, and you're back with us on Carnivore's Couch. We're talking about spring breakers. Um, Rob was getting a little empty-headed earlier. And I uh, couldn't think of anything, but he did want to talk about something before we decide the movie for next week. That's great. Let's do it. Uh, what was it? Oh, you wanted to talk about sisterly love. Oh, right. Yes, yes. Because the way that they're always kind of like teasing each other, like flirting with each other. Like there's a scene, I think, where I keep calling him Drexel because... <laughs> Alien. Alien. Where Alien's talking like, oh, you see you potty hot? See a bunch of bitches up on each other and stuff? Yeah, yeah. Oh, you like that? Oh, you like that? And, but I mean, like, there's early scenes on where they're like, you know, it's, they're not even at a party and they're like all flirting with each other, right? Pre- like like when, playing chicken kissy and blah blah blah. Yeah, there's that scene before the robbery, before they realize that they don't have enough money to go, where they're excited and they wake up the Christian girl and they start celebrating in the hall and making tunnels with each other's legs and slapping each other's rears. Oh yeah, that that actually reminded me of uh when we did New Year's in my place like in 2002 and we were climbing on the walls like yeah. that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um it's college, so yeah, man. They're they're just showing sisterly affection but it's in a very flirtatious way which 
Rob, do you have any ideas as to why that is? Well, I I, I just do. everything in this movie is hypersexualized, no matter like what you're what they're doing and and for whatever reason, right? Like even the use of guns, even the use of drinking is hypersexualized. Like um the there's the filleting scene where you know they kind of they kind of fuck aliens mouth with two guns mm-hmm. that are loaded, <laughs> which is kind of scary. And I think aliens at that point I, I really like the dichotomy of that. Like we the viewer don't know what's going to happen and aliens sitting there going like are they actually going to kill me? They seem maybe like they're going to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just I'll just make them blow their load then. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. And and also like you brought up that um in that scene where all that happens that, you know, they kind of are like drunk on the power of like being able to make him do this or that and then that he's like, Oh, I think you're my soulmates and blah blah blah. Right. But I mean, like, I, I think that he was more like, there's this uh, interesting kind of thing where it almost seems like he's doomed from the start. Like, we have flashbacks, I guess, a little bit to even before he's met the girl where he's pushing his luck with this other gangster kind of guy. Um, um, which and so he's, uh There's a scene where he's in there, he's in that thing and he's talking to him and... um the guy's like, oh, you can't be in here, right? Like, he doesn't want him oh, in his yeah, club. Oh, yeah, his friend. Yeah, that's... I mean, that's the first germs of that storyline that takes us through to the end. That Right. But, I mean, uh, so there's that. Um, and we already know that he's kind of flirting with this war against this guy from the get-go, right? He's, he's right. always kind of flirting with death. And, and that's he has a kind of mirrored attitude. in this scene with the fellatio gun thing. It's like, maybe it didn't get him off so much because he liked sucking their quote-unquote cocks, um, but more because he liked the idea of flirting with death and these these loaded weapons and, the, you know, giving himself over to them. Because, I mean, they're flirting with death. They're hanging out with this random guy and gangsters and fucking they're pulling robberies and shit and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so maybe, like, they're high on that is what's getting him off and making him, like, into them. Like, wow, you're taking this even further than I ever have. Yeah, no, that's, it's a constant uh, daring and re-daring along the spine of the American dream. Just go further. You want to go further? Oh, I want to go further. Uh, Okay. But, I mean, like, when you say American dream, it's really weird that you tend to use it in this kind of... um, uh, fear and loathing in Las Vegas sort of way. Where uh, yeah. When a lot of people talk about the American dream, that's like, you know, a wife, two kids, two cars, dog, house. That's the, that's, like, why right. is this the American the two dream? two-car garage. Um, I don't know. I think this is, it's a reimagining of the American dream because we hear it out of Franco's mouth that I think to, you know, him and to these two girls we're left with at the end, this is the dream they have. Because the one that America actually gives to them, the dream of college and of living in the suburbs, that to them is empty. So as much so as we back may... back to the Goodfellas thing where yeah. basically like everybody else is a sucker for going into the quote-unquote American dream. This is the real dream. Yeah, and, and for as much as we may judge this kind of MTV's The Grind style party hijinks as being ooh, so hollow, so superficial, to them it's a thousand times more fulfilling and substantial spiritually than anything they're getting out of the college experience. As far as fulfilling goes, uh, slow motion ass jiggling, 
Not as fulfilling as normal speed. No, no yeah, I like normal speed. Yeah. <laughs> In the <laughs> slow motion, you can kind of see every little bit of cellulite going its own different direction until it has to snap back into place because the lipids are bound to something. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So uh, anyway, the the scene... Okay, so the, the two girls drop out over the course of the film. So, I mean, that's the question is do the two girls that don't drop out and go on this crazy-ass fucking psychotic craziness, like, a, it's, uh, it's almost a la Natural Born Killers, especially with the colors. I think, yeah, th- this is a very colorful movie, by the way, and it reminds me of Natural Born Killers, the way they use color, the way they use filters, actually, to frame, you know, and juxtaposition of various images and slicing body parts into body parts with the camera lens. And the camera frame. Um, where was I going with this? Oh, so I think maybe what you were proposing is: uh, Do the girls just continue as th- we hear in oh, so right, many yeah, voiceovers? Yeah. Do the girls go back to? Yeah. Is spring break forever? Right, bitches. Yeah, but I mean, like, then what are they? Are they just gonna Thelma and Louise it? Like, I don't know. I mean, we're obviously living in something of a hyper reality here to begin with. Right. The thing that makes it's almost lawless. If they go back, the reason I think maybe they do are those phone calls they place to their mothers as they're leaving, where all of a sudden, after pushing this debauchery and this freedom and this libidinousness to its absolute extreme, then it's finally time for things to cycle back. And they're saying to their mothers, oh, you know, I, I really just want to be a better person now and just, you know, focus on school and try harder. And so... Either Spring Break does go on forever in a straight line with these girls always on the road, or it goes on forever as a cycle, I think. This cycle of of wanting to do bad things. Like James Franco says, I want to do the wrong thing, of wanting to just express ourselves in that way, and then cycling back into kind of guilt and like, okay, it's time for me to calm down and, and be more well-behaved until finally next year Spring Break rolls around again. And you know what? Enough of this. Enough of this stifling nothingness. It's time to go back to St. Pete's. And murder some people. Murder some people. Hey, Brady. Yeah, Rob? Should we go do our uh, Metacritical? I don't know. Are you up for it? You ready? Fuck you. All right. A Metacritical. Rob's never gonna win. A Metacritical. Brady's the victor again. So it's time to play. I'm gonna lose today. Metacritical, yeah, it's time, time to play. Hey, welcome to this round of Metacritical. I'm gonna fucking win this time, I promise. All right. But I don't promise you or anybody else who exists, just I promise. Uh, That sounds fair. You gotta start somewhere. Smug bastard. <laughs> All right, Brady, pick film number one. Pick a film. All right. Uh, help me out again. Give me an actor. That way there's some randomness. Kevin Bacon. Kevin Bacon. Let's do The Woodsman. The Woodsman, eh? What is that? It's a, it's a small drama from uh, maybe 2006 where he's like a sex abuser, or a sex offender trying to readapt into a neighborhood. 38. 38, I'm going to go 
65. He's looking. He's looking. What? The woodsman. 72. All Wait, right. something recent with bacon and it was good? Yeah, he, in the wake of uh, Mystic River, Bacon had himself a little a little mini boom. But Mystic River wasn't any good. <laughs> you bastards, you damn <laughs> kids. You don't respect nothing. All right, that puts me 34 points down out the gate. Brady, what are you down? I'm down seven. Fuck. All right, All right well, I'm going to go ahead and pick uh, Elf. Elf. All right. Sounds good. I'm going to go with 72. I'm going to go with 70. Damn it. If I win, I don't win by much. And if I lose, I lose by a lot. I know. I'm going to stop picking first. 64. All right. So wait, what is it? So you... I said what? You said said 72. I said 70. Uh, So you lose... Six points and I lose eight. Your your turn, fucking shiesty bastard. This game is rigged. I know. Let's do. Uh, give me an actor. Jenna Elfman. Jenna Elfman. What the hell is she in? Isn't Jerry that... Maguire. No, that's Renee Zellweger. Uh, uh, the 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 one the British lady who likes sex. Uh, Bridget Jones's Diary? Yeah. Okay, Bridget Jones' Diary 1. There's two of them? Yeah, there are two. I'm going to give it a 64. I'll go... Stop going first. <laughs> I'll go 70. There you go, split the difference again, you motherfucker. I'm going to get you. No, no, we're, we're on the honor system. I am trying to hit a bullseye. I love hitting the bullseye. 66. All right, man. You gain on that one. What would what, you guess? 72? 70. 70? So you gained four and I gained two? You mean I caught up by two points? Yeah. You're, you're, you're oh, my turn. Uh, uh, The Matrix 3. Oh, The Matrix 3. Which one is that? What's it called? That's Matrix Revolutions. Oh, yeah, yeah. Matrix Revolutions. All right. Oh, good. I might be able to win a little bit on this here. I'm I'm employing Keanu logic here. Since Keanu's 47 Ronin came out this year, I'm going to say that they knew it was a shit fucking movie, but they also pulled punches because it was The Matrix and gave it a 47. I'm going to say 34. There it is. 47. Yeah, I bullseyed. Oh, Fuck you. Keanu logic is flawless. <laughs> is that why he called his movie 47 Ronin? What did I bet? 34? Uh, 34. Ah, uh, shit. So that's 13 for me. Okay, sticking with a Keanu movie, I'll go Something's Gotta Give. 50? I'll go 62. 66. All right. Well, seeing as how I can't win this, I'm going to pick a movie that's not on here. Casper. Casper. Oh, wow. Okay. And that was pre-2000, so who knows? Maybe it only got its good reviews logged in. 80. <laughs> 80. Oh, no, no, no. It's it's going to be like a 55. Uh, they don't have the original Casper. That's they probably Spirit Dimensions. It's 58, actually. All right, your turn. Okay. Um, 
In that case, let's go with hmm, Casper Stars, Devin Sawa. Devin Sawa is oh, also wait, no, I got in. One. Oh, man, but I had one. I was about to... Buffalo 66. Uh, Buffalo 66? Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's, let's go. I'm going to say Buffalo 66 is a... Ooh, mama. 73. 99. 99. Wow, this is a big bet. It's the only way I could not win. 68. 68, okay. So I guess 99, and you guess 60. What'd you guess? I guess 73. 73. So 68, 99, that's 31. Uh, so I had total 23. 36, 67. Can you beat that? I do. I, I have 26. Oh. Damn. A Metacritical. I won again. Fuck you. What are we doing next week? I don't think we've decided yet. I mean, you know, well, we I know kind of have. We've got, uh, we've got our year-end wrap-up coming up on Rank It next week. Yeah, yeah, but we're going to do Project X. Oh, wait, no, that's this week. Huh? Uh, that's never mind. That's in a couple days or whatever. The the ranket that's following this. Oh, podcast right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's this week. Sorry. No, no. Project X is next week. Oh, okay, yeah. Project because, X because th- that's like the over the top debaucherous movie that I want to show you, which is very much follows the pushing the envelope, pushing the ante, like rising to a crescendo, like uh, this one. The fucking Adam Blast Project X. It's terribly misogynist, but. Um, Really entertaining. So everybody watch that before the next podcast. All right. Uh, I think we can rap, I guess. Theme song. <laughs> Carnivorous couch. Shit happens once a week. It swallows us for two hours when we try to sleep. It forces us to watch a film about which we then speak. Carnivorous couch. With Brady and Rob. Keanu logic is flawless. Motherfucker, I'm gonna get you.